We are starting a, a series a couple weeks ago. We started a series. We're kind of going through the Bible. The word Bible, uh, it, it means, the Bible means the books. Because it's a, not a, a book, it's a whole collection of books. 66 books, actually. Actually, it's two collections of books. The Hebrew scriptures are what we've called the Old Testament, and the Christian scriptures are what we've called the New Testament. And these are two collections of books. And we started our journey through the Hebrew scriptures because they come first chronologically. They're at the front of our Bible. And so we're in this journey, this narrative arc of the scripture story today at this, during this season. The first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, the first five books are called the Pentateuch, or the Torah, they are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books take up the Pentateuch, and they are largely, they were written or penned by Moses, who wrote or oversaw the writing of these five books. And so because of that, we started our talk the last couple weeks by talking about Moses, okay? We talked about who he was, and we talked about, um, you know, his, his story, and um, how he was supposed to die as a baby. He was miraculously delivered from death. How he grew up in Pharaoh's palace and was, grew up with privilege and education. But as an adult, he identified with his people who were slaves in Egypt, the Israelite or Hebrew people. He identified with them and tried to be a deliverer. And that didn't go well, so he runs for his life, comes back. Uh, uh, many decades later, God brings him back to help free the slaves and bring them away from Egypt and towards the land of Canaan, which was the promised land that God had promised their ancestors, their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he was going to bring them to this, this promised land and out of slavery. And Moses led the charge. We saw that the last couple of weeks. So we could begin with Moses because Moses did a lot of the penning or leadership of the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, one thing that we briefly saw, I want to go back to real quick before we jump into today's direction, is that when God first sent Moses back to the Israelites, to, to Egypt, to free them, when he first did that, um, Moses had some objections. He thought, I can't do this. There's no way. So Moses decides to say, God, I'm going to push back a little bit. And he asks some questions, some hard questions sometimes. And one of them is Exodus 3.13. It says, but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and I tell them that the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me what is his name. Then what should I tell them? In other words, Moses grew up in the palace of Egypt with a great education and understood there's a whole pantheon of gods or deities that the, the Egyptians believed in. And he knew from dealing with the slaves that they believed in one God overall that made everything the God of their ancestors. But, but now he's saying, they're gonna, I'm going to go back and tell them the God of their ancestors. Like, who, who do I say that you are if they ask me for more detail? Because I'm not sure I fully know. I'm not sure they fully know. They've been slaves for so long, just going where they're told and doing what they're told. Their Lord has been their master telling them how to work. So what do I say to them? And God answers in verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. What a great answer. It's like Popeye, you know. I am who I am. There you go. That's it. And then he says, tell them, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay. Imagine that conversation. Who, who, who sent you? Um, I am. He is? He is. Wait, you are? I am. Yep, he is. I mean, you know. Okay. Think about that, because I'm going to come back to that before we're done with our time today. So Moses goes back. We see the story last week where he led them through amazing deliverance. They're out of Egypt. They're heading to the next leg of their journey. And what happens in their story from there is that they would not enter that promised land for a very long time. They would spend the next several decades wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and the land of Canaan. There's reasons for that that I don't have time to address today. We'll get to that down the road one day. But they are going to wander. And Moses is now trying to help these people who've never governed themselves. They've never governed themselves. They've just been doing what they're told to establish a government, laws, systems, care, military uh, protection at times, uh, I mean, you just name it, he's got to cover the whole gambit with people who never had to worry about that stuff before. The, their beliefs, their, their relationship with God, education. And Moses does something remarkable. Moses begins to pen 
he begins to pen their story, to write it down. And, and I really want to get stuck here, but I know how long I'm going to take today, and I don't want to scare you off yet. So um, he, Moses is, is um, going to, I can't, I can't park here, but I just want to quickly say, Moses is one of the greatest leaders. If you want to study leadership, study Moses. Because of all the different facets of leadership of this large group of freed slaves, largely illiterate, largely, back, uh, largely you know, ungoverned before, or self, not self-governed before, and one of the things he does as an amazing leader is he writes things down in a time when books did not have the preservation that they have. He had to keep copying and copying and copying. He builds it into their system of government and their system of taxation to support people just to write their story and make copies of their story to preserve it. And that's why 3,500 years later, we have the best records of anything from that time period of the world preserved for us in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's amazing. And I can't, I can't understate that, but I don't have time to park there today. But it's amazing what we have on record because Moses said we're going to make this a priority to write this down. And today we, we have it still. And so Moses is going to write their story. He's going to write their story, and he's going to write their backstory. So these books that he writes, the first one is called Genesis. And Genesis is the backstory. It's what happened before them because the other books are about their story. Their laws, their government, their stories, their adventures. But Genesis is the backstory of their patriarchs and before them. And so we're going to look at Genesis at the beginning here. And Genesis, and to appreciate what we're going to see, you need to understand in all five books that Moses helps to write, here's the topics that are covered. For 137 chapters, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, 137 chapters are dedicated to one generation only, their generation. But then only 39 chapters are dedicated in Genesis 12 through 50. 39 chapters are dedicated to four generations of their patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, including Joseph. So why do four generations get 39 chapters and only one generation gets 137? And the answer is simple, we know. It's easy to write about what's happening right now in longer form than to go back several hundred years earlier before their centuries of slavery and have as much information to work with for the previous four generations. So there's a shorter amount of content. But then, even more remarkable, he goes back before Abraham to the very beginning of the entire world. It covers all of that in 11 chapters. Like all that history, 11 chapters. I mean, it's like the further back he goes, the bigger periods of time, the shorter amount of addressing it. Isn't that weird? But obviously it makes sense. The further back you go, the less information you have, the less it even matters to most people, quite honestly. So we're going to focus for the next two weeks, today and next week, on the 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, dedicated to everything in the world before Moses, before Abraham. That's a lot of human history. We're going to do it in two weeks. That's amazing because um, it's a lot of content. But here's the thing. We're, um, I'm going to explain to you why I wanted to do it in one week, but I'm learning I just can't go that fast. I can talk fast, but I can't go that fast. So here's how those 11 chapters of Genesis break down. Those 11 chapters, kind of, Moses breaks them down. He doesn't officially do it, but basically what he's doing in Genesis 1 through 11 is covering four topics. And here they are. First topic is, how did it all begin in Genesis 1 and 2? Next, how did it go wrong, Genesis 2 through 5? Next, why is life so short, Genesis 6 through 10? And then last, why are people so different, Genesis 11? And we're going to see that in these two weeks. And I'm going to spend the entirety of today on just the first point, the first topic there. How did it all begin? And then we're going to dive into the next three next week because they're a lot simpler to cover quickly. But today I'm going to go here. I'm going to take a big detour and accomplish something unique. Today's going to be the most unusual of the, of the series. If you've enjoyed the narratives of the last two weeks, and I know I've got a lot of good feedback about that, that's great. Today's going to be very different, but necessary. And we'll get back onto our narratives in the near future, okay? But I want to cover something. We're going to start with how did it all begin? And it starts in Genesis 1-1 when, 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 the, when the scriptures say that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what happens next is a chapter that lays out a, a, a story of how this unpacked with the idea that God stepped into a, a dark a void of world and, and created first light and then differentiated the light from the darkness to create time because, because God is beyond time. God is timeless. And so he steps into the world and by creating light and having cycles of light and darkness 
We have a, a measure of units of time that's linear that, that exists in our world that God created for us outside of who he is. So he creates time that we've broken down into smaller increments from there and creates the first day. And then from there, on every subsequent day, he does something else. He separates the waters on the, on the, uh, planet, on the planet surface to the, from the waters above. And then from there, he create, separates you know, plant life, dry land. And from there, he creates the constellations and the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then from there, he creates the, the, the birds and the, the fish in the sea. And then from there, he creates the mammals and land animals, of course, and then humanity, humans all in these six days of creation explained in Genesis chapter 1. And then at the end of that, the end of the chapter, it says in Genesis 1 verse 31, then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. And the evening passed and the morning came, marking the sixth day. And then it says that God rested on the seventh day. So Genesis 1 kind of covers an explanation of how the whole world was created. But Genesis 2 is going to take a little different approach. Genesis 2 is going to kind of go back into one little detail from Genesis 1, and that is when he created humanity. And Genesis 2 is going to address greater detail about creating human life. How God makes a man named, named Adam, which Adam literally means man, <laughs> and uh, creates this man and um, puts him in this garden and perfect place, and he gives him dominion over the earth and over the creatures of the earth, and he gives him jobs to do in the garden and in the world he lives in. And then um, eventually God looks down and, and God even gives him a way out of relationship with him. God says, I'm gonna give you something you can do that I don't want you to do so you can choose to walk away from our relationship if you want to. I'm not gonna force you against your will. I'm gonna give you free will choice. So he creates an out. And that brings up a whole other story for another day. And then God says at some point, something's missing. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. It's not good that he's alone. He needs more than just himself there and his God that he can commune with. He needs some more. And so, of course, the story goes that God made woman, Eve, the mother of all living, and the two become one. And the chapter, um, and by, uh, by the way, the chapter ends by saying, uh, 2.24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And so we have this first human relationship, and it's a couple, and you say, why is, and that's a significant thing, that the first uh, relationship was a couple. It's a big deal, but why? Why is this the first human relationship ever created, man and woman? And the answer, simply put, is because you gotta have procreation if the human race is gonna go on, right? You gotta have a, procreation's gotta happen. They gotta have babies coming. You gotta have more people. And that's how it happens, not to, give, not to give a biology class here, but that's how it happens, okay? We all understand that, right? Even in modern science, when we try to find all of these other ways to deal with life, ultimately you need the participation on some level of a man and a woman to create human life. And so God creates the first two people, sexually compatible, to create and procreate, and people come. So it's a, thing, it's a, it's a nod towards you know, this relationship, marriage, as we would say, but I, I know that for everyone, maybe everyone's not married and, and maybe never will be, or maybe you've had bad marriages, right? And I want to say to you today, it's not just about marriage because Jesus never got married in his earthly ministry. The apostle Paul never got married. I think that, that while the, the, the union of this man and woman is the centerpiece of the first relationship, and that's worthy of our, that's noteworthy, the bigger point also exists that God just said it's not good that mankind is alone. We're not supposed to be alone. That he, what we're seeing in Genesis 2 is that God made us for relationships with other people. He made us for community. That's why one of our big virtues at Lighthouse is not just to gather on Sunday morning, but to connect with other people because we were made for human relationship. Whether it's this one or a different kind. We're not made to be alone. Even, even introverts who, do, who, who recharge and alone more than they do in a party still need people in their lives somewhere. somewhere. We're made for that connection. And that's what God was saying in this chapter, that we are made for relationship vertically and horizontally, and both are important. If you're going to have healthy lives, we've got to have a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with other people. And that's what we're seeing in Genesis 2. Now, I've spent too much time there because I have a lot to cover. I'm going to just stop there and say this. That is, we're going to look at one more scripture at the end of our time today in the book of Hebrews, okay? 
but I'm going to detour because those are the chapters that talk about how it all began. And I'm going to walk away and spend the rest of my time, this will be unlike the rest of the weeks of the series in some ways, but I want to kind of get into some ground that I think the church needs to address openly in the culture we live in today with people in a lot of issues, but especially this one where we don't have agreement. So let me go down a path that's going to unpack for a while. Here's the deal. For some of you who are raised in church world or read that story, maybe that's new to you, you're new to faith, and you read that story in Genesis 1 or 2. And by the way, that's your homework assignment. Go home this week and read Genesis 1 and 2. I keep meaning to give you readings to go with our sermons. Go home and read Genesis 1 and 2 this week, okay? Now, for those of us who are raised in the world where that's what we know, the explanation of how God created everything. I want to say this to some of us for the sake of others of us in the room. There are Christians, listen carefully, there are Christians who believe that what God was doing in Genesis 1 through 11, especially in Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 1, is different than your, my, maybe, maybe our interpretation or someone else's interpretation of what God was doing and how he did it. I don't, I'm not referring to atheists or agnostics. That's another conversation. I'm going to talk about atheism and stuff before I'm done today if I have time. But I'm talking about there are Christians who believe there is a God who created everything and 2,000 years ago sent his son to be our redeemer and died on the cross and rose again and their faith is in him. That they, they, they're Christians, they're believers like you. And, and for some of you, they're in this room around you or they have people you know. There are Christians like you who believe that what God's doing in Genesis 1 through 11, largely, but especially Genesis 1, is different than your understanding of what God was explaining he did. For example, many people believe, Christians believe, that what God was doing in Genesis 1 was giving us a poetic explanation to how he created everything. And they believe he did it over a long period of time based upon their understanding of science and archaeology and carbon dating and other things of that nature that we were not going to get into. They believe that Genesis 1 is a simple explanation through a poetic rendering of what God did maybe over millions and millions of years. And that parts of this first 11 chapters that Moses is giving to these newly freed slaves is covering macro events in understandable bites to explain, and God's explaining to them something they could grasp poetically or figuratively of what he did over a vast, hard-to-understand period of time. And as we understand more, we see deeper how deep that goes. There are Christians who believe that's what's happening. And there are other Christians, if you didn't know this, who say, no, it's very literal. Very literal. Day one was this, day two, and it's very literal. Now, I'm bringing that up because that's just how it is. And that's how it is in this room. That's how it is amongst Christians everywhere. And I, I realize that we live in a day and age where people don't talk about different viewpoints very much. And if we do, social media has taught us that we just yell about them a lot. You know, that's what we're supposed to do. You yell. You know, everyone's wrong who doesn't see it my way. That's how we get along with each other, you know. And that's not helping anybody. So I want to say, I want to I kind of poke at both of these groups of Christians who have these two different views about what Genesis 1-1 and the time frame is, is describing. The two different views I just espoused. I want to poke at both sides a little bit. I'm going to start by poking with the people who say that Genesis 1-1 could not be literal. It's poetic, and it was over millions of years, and, you know, you know, I believe that scientifically that's how it was. I'm going to poke at you first, and I'm not going to poke at you very hard because I didn't give your, your view a very long, much screen time either, you know, at all. So I'm going to poke at you first. If you believe that God can create everything out of nothing, by the way, you know that's impossible, don't you, scientifically? Like there's no scientific observable event where you can create something out of nothing. You can try to move matter and energy to do things. You can't create, you, people can't recreate a, the Big Bang Theory. You know, they, we, we try to do certain things. You can't take something from nothing. It's just, it's unobservably impossible. It's just not, God, to, to, so if you believe that God did it, congratulations, because outside of the idea that there's intelligent design behind this world, nothing else makes much sense. So if you believe that God created everything out of nothing, which is impossible, but he did, but you can't accept that he could do it in six literal days, why? Isn't it possible that if God can create everything from nothing, he can do it? Like Genesis 1-1 and day one, day two, and so on. So that makes no sense to me. But, but what a bad argument to say, God can do the impossible, but God can't do that because I think that's impossible. You see what I'm saying? See, but Arlen, the world is obviously much older than this. The, the world is obviously much older 
than just 6,000 years as some young earth creationists would date it. Don't you know anything? But here's the thing. Is it possible? I'm just poking a little bit here. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying anyone's wrong. I'm just making you think here. I'm, I'm going to poke at the other side here too momentarily of the issue. Isn't it possible that God created everything with the appearance of age? That he created a world that looks older than it would be if it was infantized 6,000 years ago. They created the world. They created a light that's traveling for us to see that's so many light years away that it's further away than our universe is old. That makes no sense. But what if God put everything in motion, pushed through, so it appears to be older? We believe he did that with the first humans, that God created human life, not with an amoeba that washed up on the shore somewhere and grew a wart or, a, or, or a something and popped into a leg and an arm and a functioning human body that is amazing, and then happened to have another one just like it that be procreated together and turned into two people. I mean, we believe that God created humanity with a full-grown man because a baby can't care for itself. So you start with a developed adult human because they can provide for themselves and care for themselves, and another one, and then when they procreate a baby, they can care for the baby. What if God created the world the same way? In its adult form, partway through its cycle. So I'm not saying, I'm just offering a suggestion that before you say that God can do the impossible, make everything out of nothing, but he can't do that, maybe that's not the best box to put God in. Okay. To our six-day earth young creationist crowd, I want to say this. Can you at least consider it's possible that God, who did something far beyond what any of us were there for and understand, could have done something so wonderful, and he puts it down for us in very simple, poetic terms to describe something that, observably, it could be a lot bigger, and maybe the things that point that direction might have some merit to them. And I, and I say that simply because I grew up with people who never could concede a point, especially about things that are literal and figurative. I actually grew up in fundamentalist backgrounds where they would say, everything in the Bible is literal. But they always said that, over a certain issue that they were wanting to fight over. And my experience is this, that if you ever talk to someone who said everything in the Bible is literal, they don't really believe it. Now, some of them will never admit it. You could not talk to them before they ran you out of the room because they won't, they won't put up with it. But if you ever talk to someone who is willing to have a conversation, you'll always find that there's things that they believe are in the Bible. First of all, that don't even apply to them like other things do. That's another story. But so also some things are figurative and some things are not. And I could go down a whole rabbit trail, there's no time for it, but I will make this observation. An example would be revelations in the end times. Most people believe that those prophecies about the end times, revelations, are figurative that wouldn't have made sense to give literal interpretations because people literally could not understand what those things were, writing them down or reading them. So it's figurative. But we can't think that God maybe at the beginning said this whole explanation up front is too big, so I'm going to give it to you very poetically and in this way as well. So that people could tell their kids at bedtime while well, they were slaves in Egypt and ever since then to this day, Mommy, Daddy, tell me how we all got here. Oh, I'll tell you that story. God did that. In the beginning, God did that. And day one, he made day and night and day five, he made the fishies in the deep blue sea. Joy to you and me. And, um, and God did all that. And it's possible. I'm not saying that view is, that view is I'm just saying, can we look at it and say, hmm, what about that? The reason I say that is because there's always groups of people in the world, and this is true with politics, we know this is true with politics, don't get me on that rabbit trail, and it's true in religion and denominations and issues, including this issue, that come to a viewpoint that say, if you don't share my view of how things happened, then you don't share my faith. And I always cringe when I hear that kind of talk, but it comes out of some groups, including this group I'm referring to today. For example, in politics it becomes, if you don't vote for my candidate, who's very flawed, but you don't vote for them, then you're voting for the other candidate, which even if you're not, you are by default, which means you're voting for the, all the ideas that I'm going to make demonized and horrible, which basically means if you don't vote for my flawed people, then you're voting for Satan or something like that. I mean, we get, we get that way. We're like on all sides of all issues. We're all like, this is my way or you're way off. And I see that with Christians over it, things that they disagree with each other on, including the issue we're talking about today. I, I wish I could say that Christians always behave themselves well when they have disagreements. But we really get upset and hostile towards other believers who don't share our views. And so um, here's an example. Just reading the last few weeks in some of these topics and kind of digging deeper, it always breaks my heart to see the tone. And I saw some people, I'm going to be very careful how I tread here. I see some people who are experts in the creation world. And I'm not going to find anybody 
of us, myself included, by going any more specific than that. Be very hostile. Now, here's what, let me back up and tell you what an expert is. You should know what an expert is. This will help you with your politics. This will help you with your religion. An expert is anyone who holds your view and can articulate it better and more knowledgeably than you can and support your view in your echo chamber and your silo. That's an expert. They can explain my ideas better, really good. They're an expert. Anyone who has a different view that I don't have is not an expert. They're an idiot. Just, we need to understand this is how the, the system works, okay? So if you can explain my view real well, you're an expert. If you don't have my view, you're an idiot, okay? So an expert is someone that I'm going to say, hey, they really say this well, and they seem to be knowledgeable. And, and we're going to always say, don't listen to any other viewpoints. We'll bring a few of their worst ideas over to say, aren't these ideas easy to shoot down? Aren't they stupid over there? Ignore them and don't listen to what they have to say and just stay in our silo and our echo chamber. And that's how most people do their politics and their religion and all their other issues, including their hot-button issues of culture today. We're just stuck, and that's why the culture is so toxic in so many places in the world. And I always cringe when I see that. I say, is there not a better way to understand and communicate with each other? One of the saddest things I hear some people say in, in church world, especially over topics like creation, but even broader modern issues, is things like, it's faith versus science, and I believe faith over science. And I'm like, please don't say stupid stuff. It is not faith against science. That is nonsense. That's, even, that's a bad argument. Can I just say this to you? In the, the, some of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of the history of the world were done by people of faith. Did you know that? Some of the greatest scientific discoveries and breakthroughs of the world were people of faith. And it feels like for the last 100 plus years there's been a, there's been a push by people who are anti-God to try to push faith out of science. Or faith community out of science, because those are different words. To push faith community out of science. Probably for different reasons, to maybe make it look stupid. And unfortunately, many Christians have given them that turf. We're like, oh, I don't want to play on the same ground as you, so I'm just going to abdicate and bunker down. It's faith versus science. It's not. All science is is the observation of how the world works, of how things work. So can I give you a, my, here's a way to think of science. Science is the study of how God did everything. Science is the study of how God did it all. Oh, and that's all you got to say. That's why if something comes along, is it discovered through archaeology or science or observation that doesn't fit my box, my construct? I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. That's how God did it. Cool, he sure is amazing. But I think that some of us are afraid that something's going to come along and shake our construct so much that we say, ah, and we just reject anything from archaeology to science to a number of other issues that just mess with our ecosystem because we're afraid. Which brings me to my point I'm trying to make here. Often we take what we know or think that we know for granted and we forget to stay curious. When I say stay curious, I don't mean stay curious to how I can best craft an argument about why everyone else is wrong except for me without really giving the other people any chance to explain their viewpoint. I think curiosity is saying I'm open-minded, I'm humble, and I'm willing to learn. We forget to stay curious. Culture is not curious. I heard people on Facebook yelling at each other saying, the, the prompt says, what's on your mind? So that's what I'm supposed to do is tell you what's on my mind, you know. You know, I'm just going to declare my flag where it's planted and yell louder. But we assume that our own belief is completely accurate and that there is some kind of benefit in never changing our opinions or challenging our assumptions. And I believe a lot of it is fear-based. It's fear-based because we're afraid that if my ideas were scrutinized or cross-examined, that my beliefs would fall. Folks, I want to say something very clear. If your or my beliefs would fall under cross-examination or scrutiny, then they weren't worth having because I don't want to have a truth that's wrong. I want to have a truth that is rock-solid. And some of us, we're just, we're just like, I don't know that, that my beliefs would, would falter. I'm just afraid they will. Can I really poke at some of us? That says more about your and my faith in our beliefs. If my faith in my beliefs is so fragile that I'm afraid it can't handle a cross-examination or a look, that says something about what I believe. Instead of saying, I'm not afraid of that. And I think a lot of this comes down to leadership. Church leadership, leading people. People in a church who want their church to lead a, a certain way, fear-based. Parents are great at doing this. We've got to like put a bubble wrap around things because we're afraid if you ever get another uh, viewpoint brought to you that you're going to. So we get angry. We get fearful and we get angry of things that we think are threatening because we don't believe our views can hold up to scrutiny. That's a terrible way to live politically and Christian-wise and, and, and faith-wise. 
Because here's the truth, folks. This is a big idea. Truth never fears exploration. Fear, truth never fears. Truth never fears exploration. Because I believe that if I explore and I find out that what I believe is wrong, guess what I get to do? I get to change what I believe to what's right. And if I find out what I explore, I find out what I believe is right, you know what I get to do? I can say, oh, cool. I have confidence. And possibly can let someone else explore and come to see the truth that they don't know. But when we lock down and bunker down, we don't get anywhere. And so I want to say something to all of us today in the church world, especially, and this is not about creation, but creation is a great chance for me to take a detour this week to say something that maybe will provoke some of us to think. You can always talk to me later over coffee and let me know how wrong I am. But here's the thought. It's important to realize that there are people who know the Bible as well as you do, who love the Bible as much as you do, who think the Bible says something different than you do. Well, Arlen, what do you mean? That truth is just relative? No. Come on now. Truth is not relative. Truth is truth. Come on. Don't, give, don't, don't do it. That's easy. That's lazy. And of course, truth is the truth. I'm saying that what you believe to be the truth might be wrong. Because truth is truth. It's not relative. That if a bunch of people, there are some things that are very clear in Scripture and otherwise, and there are some things that are difficult to sort out. And if other good people come to a different conclusion than me, it's not relative, there's a truth, but it's possible that me or you or somebody is convinced of the wrong thing. And that's why it's important to stay humble and curious. Because there are people who know the Bible as well as you do, who love the Bible as much as you do, who believe the Bible says something different than you do. So what does that leave us? That, that is our definition that if I believe it, it's the truth and truth is relative, so basically I'm right and everyone else is wrong. That's a, that's a way to live. That's the way much of Americans seem to live today from what I see on interactions. Christians should be better than that. But this is a true statement on the screen. And that, by the way, is why Peter, I love what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.18. Peter said something that we all ought to take to heart. He said, rather you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever, amen. Notice growing in grace and growing in knowledge. That's something we need to do. Growing in knowledge does not mean growing in better ways to defend my beliefs without scrutiny. Growth in knowledge means I'm going to learn about everything. Folks, I love to read. Personally, I love to read contrarian views. I can't get into it today because I'm out of time, but I can nerd out with you for a long time about contrarian views of a lot of different topics. They're on my bookshelf. I want the best argument someone can give to something that I have assumed or believed. I want the best argument from the horse's mouth, not from my side making fun of them. Because I love that because it challenges me and what I've always assumed. Because I want to grow in knowledge. We all ought to grow in knowledge. And I believe that when we grow in knowledge, we will also grow in grace. I think those two terms go together. That when someone grows in knowledge, they may change some of what they believe or some part of what they believe. But even if they don't, because they come to the deeper understanding that what they know is right, they also will grow in grace because they now understand where other people are coming from. And they understand where they're coming from, and they can say, I have grace for that because I understand it better. And here's my, here's my real poke here. If someone seems to be knowledgeable but lacks grace, I doubt how much knowledge they have personally. If someone seems knowledgeable but they don't have any grace, I always figure they might just know their position really well and how to articulate it really well and only look across other positions to find fault. I doubt how much knowledge they have because I think growing in knowledge also brings growth in grace. So it makes me wonder about knowledge where there's no grace. And I've seen leading Christian voices on multiple topics, including this topic today of creation, and that's all I'm going to poke. That's all I'm going to say. Who are very ungracious, calling the other people arrogant and hateful when they're being fake, humble, and arrogant about their views and there's no grace. And I'm like, how much knowledge do you have if you have no grace? Makes me wonder. Because the only other reason I can explain besides a lack of knowledge would be I have knowledge but no grace because, and this is, this is, this is bad, because I am busy busy my own empire and my own fame and following and fortune. And I gotta please the cash cow that makes me powerful and popular and wealthy, even if it's not just in how I do it. And that should never be said about Christians, ever. Christians ought to be people who grow in grace and knowledge along the way. 
So they say, well, how do we find common ground? How do we find common ground? How Arlen is a person who believes in science and observation and things that believe that obviously Genesis 1-1 is a poetic telling of what God did and we're starting to understand it more. How can I find common ground with people who are like yelling at me that it's, it's literally younger six days? How can I find common ground with those people? Or Arlen, how can I find common ground with people who deny my faith that says it was done in these six days and they think it's something else and means something different? How can I find common ground with those people, those other Christians? They don't have faith, which is a big accusation. Or they don't have brains, big accusation. How do we find common ground? And I don't think, I'm making a big devil here out of something to try and help us understand this is the culture we live in. Everyone yells and doesn't get along and buckles down. How do we find common ground with people who have different views as believers about how it all began? And the common ground is faith. Our faith that there's God behind it all. Our common ground of faith that in the beginning, God. Regardless of how we think that unpacks and what that means and how that really looks and what that is talking about, we believe that one way or the other, in the beginning, or as Genesis 1-1 says it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can debate how he did it, but we don't debate that he did it. That's common ground from people who try to figure out things that are all before we were around and pretty vast topics. In the beginning, God created. We agree on that. And that's important because I want to say something to a bunch of us today. Maybe you're a young person who's just getting old enough to start caring about these kinds of things and you hear a lot of different voices in your ear. Or maybe you're a, a young Christian or a new Christian. Or maybe you're an old-time Christian who's become skeptical and doubting of things you've always been told. And I want to say this to you. That's all good, by the way. That's, that's what, I, I like the fact that our church has always had a variety of people from different views and walks of life who feel safe to come here and, and explore their faith. But I want to say this to us. Wherever you are in your faith journey, you're probably going to come around people more and more who are going to poke holes in your faith. And here's why. Because in any worldwide belief system of any kind, including Christianity, we're trying to explain the whole entire world and how it all existed Folks, there's room to find holes to poke. There's room. Because there's questions that we can't answer. There's things that we say, I don't know. But that's not just true for your belief system. That's true for every belief system. We try to explain the whole world away. It's easy for a skeptic to say, well, what about this, though? And to ask questions and to poke holes and to mock, even to mock. And if that shakes you, I want to give you some strength today and say this. Don't let it shake you. By the way, moms and dads and, parents and leaders, I want to say this. That's why it's important for us not to think. It's not like the old, old times when we can think we can insulate behind some tight walls our kids away from bad teachers or professors someday that can tell them bad ideas that we don't agree with. It's, now it's the internet. Now it's TikTok videos. It's YouTube comment section. It's social media where people are going to poke holes and ask questions and even mock and tear down beliefs. You can't hide from it. And that's why we ought to do better than to say, that's not up for discussion. That's the end I said so, Period. That's not an answer. Or to sit there and, and deny or lie about the story that they're going to find out. It's, it's just to say, let's, let's look at it humbly and honestly. Now, if you've ever seen someone poking at your faith as a young person or a, an older Christian who's become skeptical, and you see people mocking your faith and your views, they're probably either agnostic or atheist. I want to make a difference here. There's a difference between an agnostic and an atheist. And some of us need to know the difference. An atheist is someone who says definitively, there is no God. There is no God, period. It's really a religion of its own. And now an atheist will get mad at you for calling it a religion, but it really is a religion of its own. It's a belief system, a belief that there is no God and everything's explainable apart from any idea of God. That's an atheist. An agnostic is someone who simply says, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know, and maybe I don't care. I'm apathetic and agnostic, you know? I don't know. I don't know. And a lot of people who say they're atheists because that's a buzzword, are really agnostic. If you could corner them and ask them some hard questions with humility, but just ask them questions, if they'd let you, they probably would not let you any more than some Christians will let you push certain buttons because everyone gets hostile on all sides. But if you, could push, if you could talk to some people who call themselves atheists and get them to admit the truth, many would probably admit in the end, yeah, I'm more of an agnostic. I just don't know. Because atheism is its own beast. But whether you're an atheist or agnostic, you might poke holes in social media and other gatherings against Christian faith. Don't let that shake you. Here's why. Well, first of all, the agnostics are doing it because, maybe because they just want to tear down what they think is intellectually unstimulating. 
or maybe because they were hurt by religion and faith, and they're just have a, they want to see it all burned to the ground because of how they've been hurt, which is true. We've done a lot of damage in the name of Jesus, unfortunately. Or maybe because they don't want the idea that there's a God who can tell them what to do. And atheists have an agenda. But before someone pokes holes with big, hard questions of things that are too wonderful for us to all figure out and shakes your faith, remember this. They don't have better answers themselves. If you could turn the tables on a true atheist and say, okay, you tell me. You've poked holes in my, you've, you've poked, made fun of my views. What are yours? They have to make explanations of how everything began without the intelligent design. By accident. That's pretty remarkable. How do you do that? The Big Bang, what, what, I mean, I, that's a awesome theory, by the way. It's incredible. What banged? Cosmic particles and dust? See, some atheists will make fun of Christians by saying, you don't have answers. Whenever you don't have answers, Christians, you just put God in the gaps. You put God in the gaps and make fun of that. But you know what they do? They put things in the gaps too. We're just like, in the beginning, it was God. Where did God come from? He just always was. And atheists will say, in the beginning, there was something that banged. Well, bang, cosmic particles. Where did they come from? They always were. Maybe there was aliens. Where did they come from? I don't know. I mean, we have all these weird views. I can't get into the nuance other than to say that don't ever feel like someone who is simply sitting back and poking holes from a distance in your beliefs that are hard to fully understand or defend means they have a better version. In fact, what I've learned is that the further people get from removing God from the equation, the more they have really weird versions of reality. I was going to share a couple, but I don't have time. Really weird versions of reality to try to explain it all apart from God. But we won't talk about that. We're just going to poke holes in your beliefs. And I believe that our faith of putting God in the spaces where we don't have explanation, but I just believe that God does what I can't explain, is not a cop-out. It's called faith. And there's a biblical case to be made for reasoning and logic. God has never called anyone to blind faith. We're going to see this in a few weeks. God never calls anyone to blind faith. He always comes along and says, here, let me show you that you can trust me. In the future, when you're not sure, remember that and trust me. God's always given us reason. And even in this world we live in, the heavens declare the glory of God. They show his handiwork. And we have reason to trust him and to give him the benefit of the doubt in our gaps. And that's reasonable, not mockable. But even with reasoning and wisdom, faith is still the centerpiece. It's our ability to say, I may not know how he did it, but I know that he did it. And that's an okay thing to say about a lot of issues, including today's topic. I may not know how he did it, but I know that he did it. That, that is peace-giving. Because that doesn't only help your present and your past, that helps your present and your future. Because we can also say this, I may not know how he's going to do it, but I know that he's going to do it. I can trust him, and it is well with my soul. So it all comes down to faith. And I'm going to close with one last scripture, and then a couple of statements, we're done. The last scripture is Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great chapter of faith, and here's what it says. Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Verse 2, through their faith, people in days of old earned a good reputation. Why? Because they were people of faith. Not of answers. Not of, they didn't have all the answers. Genesis isn't even necessarily a science textbook. Arguably. But what God was saying to newly freed slaves is, hey, you came from a system with a pantheon of gods. The God of the Nile River, the God of the sun. Watch me through the plagues I'm going to send. Knock down through darkness, they're God of the sun. To knock down the God of the water. And let me tell you the creation story. God created that sun. And God created those oceans. And God created that water. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. All the things you've heard about, all the cultural, regional gods, here's what you need to know. It was all one God over all who made everything. That's what you need to know. And through their, through their faith, the people in old days said, okay, that's who we worship. And they earned a good reputation. Look at verse 3. Don't miss verse 3. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It's, un, it's unreplicable. It's scientifically unobservable. It's impossible. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's like my iPad. You didn't know this, but one day an explosion took place. And out of the explosion came my iPad. It does face ID and internet access and texting. 
by pure, no, it was intelligently designed, even though I don't understand how it was done. And this world of perfect order and design that runs so perfectly, I don't understand, I don't understand it all. But obviously it was designed, created by a maker. And by faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we see now did not come from anything that can be seen. I don't know how he did it, I just know that he did it. That's my faith. And that's our common ground on all of our explanations for how we agree that. And then verse six, I gotta wrap this up. Verse six says this, and it is impossible to please God without faith. That while God gives us sound reasons to trust him and good ground for our logic and our, faith and our wisdom, he also wants us to have faith and without faith it's impossible to operate in any belief system because you're gonna have faith in something. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And then he defines faith in the rest of the verse. This is what I want to send you home with. He says, anyone, this is faith defined, don't miss it now. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. There it is in a nutshell. I learned that in the old English translation that I grew up with, and it says it just a little differently. It says, anyone who wants to come to God must believe that he is you know what I like about that wording? It reminds me of Moses. Who do I say you are? I am. He is. He is. You are. I am. He is. He that comes to God must believe that he is or that he exists. That's what Moses was doing in this book. He's saying, folks, here's what you need to know coming out of Egypt, that there is a God who formed it all and he is real. And without faith, we don't please him. We come to God and believe he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. In other words, that God is not distant or hiding from us. He's right there saying, I want relationship with you. I won't force it on you, but I want it. I love you. And it brings us the two macro ideas from that verse that form the base foundation of what faith is. And that is simply this. Number one, that God exists. And number two, that God is love. And that's the base foundational level by that verse for what faith is at its core foundation. And that's encouraging because that ought to give us a conversation piece into the lives of people who struggle with agnosticism and doubt. I have someone in my life that I love very dearly, a peer of mine, that for the last dozen years or so has been struggling to leave faith and find themselves, they call themselves an agnostic now. And we've had a lot of conversations over a lot of times, a lot of trips and a lot of hangouts and camping and stuff. And one time, this dear person that I love, we had a couple of nights together with other people. We were camping. And we talked about, you know, his beliefs and what he thinks is how the universe was and, you know, and mine. And as a preacher and as an agnostic, we had a long conversation. And I love this person so much. And we came to two agreements at the end of a couple of long days. We both agreed at the end is there a God? Yes, I believe there is. And then what is he or she? I believe that God is love. Those are the foundations that we both came to. Now, here's the bottom line. That might make some of us uncomfortable. Like, that's not enough. You know, that's, you know because, because we're too busy fighting with other people who believe in our God because they don't believe he did it how we think that he did it. And if we're doing that, we're on the wrong, we're on the wrong map, folks. We don't sit there and say, we all believe that God formed it all, one way or the other. And go over to people who are struggling and say, can we start with a foundation of faith that God exists and God is love? Because if you can start there, you can build Christianity from there. Do you see? It's not a religion of the world that says, throw your babies to the, to the volcano or to the crocodiles to appease the angry God with your sacrifice because God hates you all because you're too noisy. No, it's a belief in God that says God loves you and he sent his son to sacrifice himself for you because he wants you back more than he wants you to pay. So he paid because God is love and God serves and God gives. Christianity is, is buildable on the framework foundationally that God exists and God is love. And that's a starting point that we can carry into the family members and the friends that we love if we stop fighting with each other about how it happened and focus on some foundational ideas of faith, that there's a God behind it all who is loving. I'm, gonna, I'm done. I'm gonna give you one more statement. It's, it's a prayer to take home with you. And let me take an extra minute before I give you that prayer to say this. Here's what I'm trying to do today. I'm trying to say, we're looking at this through the Bible series, which is largely stories, and you're gonna enjoy that most of the time. Today, we looked at the beginning of how it all started. I presented two contrarian Christian views to explain how God created everything. 
And I said to both sides, be careful that you don't dismiss other people, but have an open mind and a humility. Grow in your knowledge of what you don't know and grow in grace. And, and realize that if someone struggles with disbelief, every system of explaining the entire world's existence has question marks because it's hard, but God makes the most sense. Find the common ground with anybody that there is a God who exists and that he is love. And then you can go from there with what's most important to our faith. Now, I hope that helps somebody. But I want to give one more, one more thing to you. There are people here today, no doubt, who you're personally struggling. Maybe because you're young and you just are starting to think this through. Maybe because you're uh, new to faith. Maybe you're an old-time Christian. You've lost your confidence and you're, you're skeptical. Maybe you have macro belief issues. Or maybe it's not your macro beliefs. Maybe it's your personal struggles. You're going through a hard time and you're not sure what to think anymore. Where's God? Why is he doing this? What's he up to? So whether it's your macro beliefs or your personal struggles, you're wavering, you're struggling. And based upon the verse that we just read in Hebrews 11, verse 6, I want to give you a simple prayer to pray. And this simple prayer is more of an affirmation. It's more of an affirmation of, of basic faith in God, even though you don't understand and this can be prayed whether you are strong in your macro beliefs or uncertain. This can be prayed whether you're on top of the world in your personal life or the world's on top of you. And you're on mountaintops or valleys. This prayer is something I want you to take home and tell God often. And it's based on the last verse that we just read, Hebrews eleven six. It goes like this. Lord, I believe that you're there. And I believe that you care. And that's it. God, I believe that you're there. And I believe that you're there, that you care. That I don't have better answers. I have some questions. I have some frustrations. I have some hurts. I have some doubts. I have some, I have all sorts of stuff, God. And maybe some days I feel strong, some days I feel weak. And, and maybe today I don't have much more to offer than that. But even in my worst possible day, at the very core of my being, I still, at the center, believe that you're there. And I still believe that you care. Help me. Take that home with you, no matter who and where you are, and let that be a foundation. Because if you give that foundation, God can say, I can work with that. God can say, I can build on that.